This is Unstable Molecules, Explorations in the Origins of the Marvel Universe, the podcast dedicated to delving into the early years of Marvel Comics, its characters and creators. I'm Gary Hollingsby, and this time we take a break to look at two of the comics Jack Kirby was creating in the late 50s, and how he ended up working with Stan Lee at Atlas Comics by the end of the decade. At the start of 1958, Kirby was working for national periodical publications, DC Comics, as well as companies like Harvey, Atlas and Crestwood, who published the prize imprint featuring titles like Young Romance and Black Magic, both producing stories from Joe Simon and Kirby. And while at National, Kirby created what could be argued to be the first Silver Age superhero team, The Challengers of the Unknown, and drew 12 issues. But... Kirby suddenly stopped working for National after 18 months following a bitter legal dispute over a syndicated comic strip. Kirby joined National at the end of 1956 and worked as a freelancer on titles like House of Mystery, Tales of the Unexpected, Adventure Comics, World's Finest and Green Arrow. Over two years he produced something like 600 pages of artwork just for National, but his chief accomplishment was Challenges of the Unknown. Four adventurers who survive a plane crash and while living on borrowed time battle alien and supernatural threats as well as an assembly of dastardly human villains. Though Kirby only stayed on the title for 12 years, Challenges ran for something like 20 years with 86 issues. Challenges is a transitional comic. It draws together a number of different elements from 50s genre comics and movies. Weird fantasy tales, big monsters science fiction technologies, alien invaders, and the presence of the ancient and occult. But the book combines them into a team adventure in what seems to be a new, different way, anticipating the Marvel approach that Kirby took with Stan Lee a few years later. Originally, Joe Simon, Kirby's longtime writing partner and co-creator of Captain America, took the idea for Challengers about a team that cheated death and took chances because they were living on borrowed time, to National. Jack Leibovitz, the head of National, was sceptical, but allowed a tryout. Simon and Kirby met resistance from inside National in the form of the production the department that insisted that Kirby drew in the house style, and by Mort Weisinger, who had been editor of the Superman and Batman comics and was incredibly influential within the company. Consequently, Simon didn't hang round long and departed quickly to Harvey Comics and his own non-comics work. But Kirby stayed a little longer and was paired with what Kirby later described as an eccentric writer called Dave Wood, who seemed to be always disappearing and left Kirby constantly looking for him and chasing him up. The writing of Challengers seemed to involve Kirby explaining the plot, Wood typing up a script which would Kirby would almost always rewrite. So it seems that from the outset, Kirby is the person who drives the creation, drives the, the Challenges narratively. Challenges was launched in 1958 in Showcase issues 6 and 7. Showcase was National's tryout title, where characters would be presented and, if popular, could get their own comic. It was also unusual in that each issue was one story divided into chapters, rather than lots of smaller tales. And it's this type of longer form storytelling that Kirby took to Atlas 
first in the big monster books, then in the westerns, and finally leading to the Fantastic Four and subsequent superhero titles of the Marvel Age. Challenges of the Unknown, they came from their their own particular time. They were post-war characters. And what the Challengers of the Young was saying is, where are we going now? And that was a question I asked in all those stories. Kirby's run on Challengers is incredibly narrative-driven and is clearly influenced by the B-movies that he loved. There's little time for character development in what are essentially action-driven plots. Despite their names and different skill sets, we have Rocky Davis, who's an Olympic wrestling champion, Professor Haley, who's a master skin diver, Red Ryan, who's a circus daredevil, and Ace Morgan, who's a war hero and fearless jet pilots. Once they're in their purple uniforms, they're interchangeable. They're all big, stocky, square-jawed men, and only distinguished by their hair colour. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's who, but it doesn't really matter anyway. The challenges are similar to an earlier adventure team, the Blackhawks, who were Quality Comics' World War II team of all-male ace pilots who were coincidentally bought international in 1957. There's no romance in Challengers at all, with one exception. The only female appears is June Walker, a scientist, who also seems to have a strange relationship with her name. Sometimes she's called June Robbins. She's an honorary Challenger who appears in some of their adventures. It's all quite masculine and physical. None of the challenges that the Challengers face require much brain work. They solve crisis pragmatically and like engineers and when they need specialised equipment it's usually created by military scientists behind the scenes all of Kirby's work on challenges is collected into a great 300 page hardback omnibus from DC with an introduction by Paul Kupperberg which argues that challenges is a culmination of decades of experience that Kirby's knowledge of story construction, the relationships between characters, the mixing of personality types enabled Kirby to create real dramatic tension in the stories. And in the afterword of the omnibus, John Morrow, the the comics historian, argues that if Flash is considered the first superhero of the Silver Age, then the challenges are really the first super team of the era. Catapulted into world fame by deeds of indescribable daring, four men have sworn to tread the path which all men fear, the dangerous road beyond the things we know. They call themselves the The Challengers of the Unknown. One of them is jet pilot Ace Morgan, who tests Air Force equipment to the threshold of space itself. Another is Prof Harrison, who dares to explore the sea where no man would risk the crushing depths. On one of Mount Everest's most treacherous peaks, Red Ryan gambled with his life against the sheer icy walls that rise above the clouds. And when the unknown tests of man's stamina and strength to their limits, Rocky Davis, champion wrestler, will risk the test any place, any time.
The Challenger's first adventure takes place in a 24-page story titled The Secrets of the Sorcerer's Box in Showcase No. 6, which had a, a February 1957 cover date. Kirby and Dave Woods are credited as writers, Kirby's on pencils, and Ros Kirby, Jack's wife, is credited as the inker. It immediately establishes the type of book it's going to be. A hybrid comic which mixes adventure, the supernatural, giant monsters and slight futuristic science fiction. Four adventurers survive an air crash while on their way to be interviewed for a radio program called Heroes. Inexplicably, four realise that they should be dead and declare that they're living on borrowed time. Their watches have stopped. It's become a motif the team and immediately they decide to form an organization that deals with extraordinary problems and they dress in a space program like purple uniform it's ace morgan who comes up with their team name when he talks about taking risks and daring to challenge the unknown they become headline news and even set up a headquarters a few months later they're hired by the mysterious wizard-like morellian who challenges them to open the four chambers of an ancient box. The origin of the box is never explained, other than it's very old. The technologies inside are advanced, and as the challengers open each chamber, they release dangers that have to be dealt with. A giant orange rocky monster called the Dragon Seed that hatches from a giant egg. A telepathic freezing sun that drains the heat from living things. And a whirling weaver a remotely controlled drone. And in the final chamber, there is what Morellian believes a ring of immortality. There's some typically Kirby-esque features. There's the ancient futuristic science, futuristic jets that the characters fly around in. It has a, a middle European Gothic setting with a medieval castle. It has a remote, remote island setting. It's a mystic sorcerer, giant monster, the involvement of the military, an atomic bomb is set off. There's also some really neat science fiction ideas. We have this idea of a freezing sun creature. Is it a living creature or what? The giant that they encounter is a thought form that can only be defeated by an act of will. And the weaving drone um, is can only be communicated with through the tape-like substance that it spins all very far out for the end of the 50s. Their second adventure, Ultivac is Loose, features in the next issue, which is so Showcase, issue 7, which has an April 1957 cover date. Again, we have Dave Woods writing, Kirby penciling, and Ros Kirby credited as Inca. The second challenges adventure as a team confronted by Ultivac, who's a giant robot. And the story draws in elements as disparate as Nazi scientists, King Kong and artificial intelligence. Its cover is very similar to that of Fantastic Four number one, which Kirby would draw about three years later. A giant robot has a woman in its clutches and sort of Fay Ray style in a city street setting, while the challenges are in action about its feet. Ace Morgan fires some sort of laser gun at the robot. Strangely, the challengers play secondary roles to the story of the giant Kong-like monster, 
and to the woman who goes on to become the, the associate honorary member of the team, which is quite strange considering this is only the second issue of, of, of the run. The splash page has the, a robot's giant hand smashing through a window, and we get a dynamic four-panel page that explains who the four challenges are and showing them in action, ejecting from an experimental jet in a sub, climbing mountains, and even wrestling an alligator. Then the story opens with a team recounting their adventure with a sorcerer's box, just for continuity's sake, and looking through a sack full of mail for a new challenge. A Nazi scientist, Felix Hess, approaches them and recounts working with a criminal called Barker to create an advanced computer. And then suddenly the computer, which is now turned into a giant robot, attacks the room that the challenges are in and grabs Hess before flying away. Tracking down the robot first involves visiting a top-secret laboratory, which they seem to know about, considering they're not military, and meeting the greatest authority on robots and calculating machines, Director June Robbins. Her view is that the robot may have a superior intelligence and feeds data into a computer which tells her that Ultivac will fall when a challenger dies. Meanwhile, Ultivac has created a thousand robots in the form of Felix Hess, that are tasked with retrieving supplies of oil and chemicals. We see a scene where the FBI close in on one of the robots to arrest who they think Hess is, only to watch it disintegrate in front of them. Red and June Robbins track down Hess, actually one of the robots, and they follow it to a radically designed helicopter which flies them to a remote place in a volcano where they find the real Hess and Barker, who are now under the control of Ultivac. Ultivac then uses telepathic force to subdue Red. Ultivac explains it will not hurt them, but also won't let them leave. Ultivac realises that June does not fear it and she tries to convince the robot it's the one who is afraid. And with Ultivac distracted, Red attacks a power unit with a steel bar and confuses the robot. Ultivac chases them from the cave. Hess fires a supersonic weapon he'd been secretly building which causes the robot to short circuit. And Hess and Barker, in true Carl Denham style, decide to bring the giant robot to New York to show it off and make money. They have Ultivac chained up in in Yankee Stadium. And at that point, Ultivac sends a telepathic message calling on June Robbins to help him. And when she intervenes, the robot breaks its restraints and escapes clutching June. A squadron of planes fire on Ultivac until Ace Morgan turns up in a plane and sends them off. He tries to talk terms with the robot, but it just simply disintegrates his aircraft but he does manage to escape. Ultivac hides at the bottom of the Atlantic in a cave with an air pocket just to keep June alive. And then Prof Harrison, the expert diver, follows it in a suit designed for maximum submersion before he finds Ultivac. um, A vibro beam hits him and knocks him out. When he wakes up, he finds June and she's now sympathetic to Ultivac. But Prof is convinced that the robot is a threat. And at this point, the Navy receives a message that Ultivac has been seen heading for the East Coast. The challengers surprise the robot and blow it up with a bomb. However, it's not really Ultivac. It's a copy built to show June and Prof what would happen. Ultivac declares he will strike back against humanity. But June manages to convince Ultivac to befriend humanity. And the story ends with Ultivac appearing before the public and offering his powers for the good of mankind. And June insists that it should be government property, 
But Barker and Hess turn up and disagree, and Ace tells them they're unfit to control Ozivac. And in retaliation, Hess puts out, pulls out his laser gun and shoots Ozivac. Rocky struggles with Hess for the gun and is shot. And he's rushed to hospital for emergency surgery and dies on the operating table. And with what's really inappropriate timing, June asks to take Rocky's place in the team. The men are bemused by the thought of a, a female daredevil, but agree, even though their friend is effectively dying. However, at this point, the doctors tell the team that they've managed to resuscitate Rocky with new techniques. Well, they don't describe what the new techniques are. And June doesn't get to join, but she later becomes an associate member. And the final panel shows the team visiting June a little later, where she shows them the remains of Ultivac and that they've been cannibalised into a new calculating machine. In the B-movie titled The Day the Earth Blew Up, featured in showcase number 11 with a December 1957 cover date, Dave Woods writing Kirby Pencils and Bruno Premiani on inks, the challengers are recruited to find two lost Arctic explorers and are captured by aggressive aliens called the Tyrans. They're preparing to cause an environmental catastrophe in order to then enslave the Earth. We have, at the start of the comic, a recurring character page showing each of the four men in action, which works very well in establishing them for new readers. There are some great panels of Prof diving in the South Pacific and encountering volcanoes rising from the sea. Then they're in the Antarctic and there's the thing from another world encounter with a spacecraft frozen beneath the ice. All the challengers end up captured and are shown how Earth will be devastated by explosions that will tear some of the Earth's core into space. The Tyrans themselves have auxiliary brains that act like computers, as they're sort of sticking out the tops of their heads. And Rocky and Ace work on sabotaging the, the Tyrans' base while Prof and Red use a teleporter to escape and warn the military. Prof has a team of scientists build him an experimental diving suit with a built-in electronic brain to match the Tyrants. He manages to sabotage one of the Tyrant bombs. There's a giant walking machine that emerges from the sea, which Red uses experimental chemicals to dissolve. And at the end, Ace and the military bomb what's left of the Tyrant's base. Showcase 12... February with a February 1958 cover date which has Dave Woods credited for writing, Kirby on pencils and um, George Klein on inks this has an epic Kirby-esque giant monster cover as the four challengers battling a gigantic octopus, very much like the later Monstroso from Tales of Suspense number 8 and in this issue the menace of the ancient vials it opens with the challengers chasing villains through the air. The villains land on an unmapped island and find an archaeologist who's discovered five ancient vials containing mysterious liquids created by sorcerers. The villains drink one of the vials, making them giants. Another releases a large fire salamander. Another falls into the water, creating a giant octopus. And the leader of the criminals, Karnak, drinks one of the vials which duplicates him a hundred times and enables him to cause a crime wave. It's a reworking of the, the first Challengers story where the, the heroes face different mythical challenges from an ancient civilization, And this pattern, as we'll see, recurs in lots and lots of these early Challengers stories. 
Challengers issue one, which has an April 1958 cover date, which is written by Kirby, drawn by Kirby, and has Ros Kirby credited with inks. It has two stories in it. In The Man Who Tampered With Infinity, the team are summoned to Washington, D.C. because scientific equipment has been stolen. And their honorary member, June Walker, who's no longer called Robbins, has vanished. During another robbery, the team are teleported to the mountain laboratory of Olaf Targoryen. And as the scientist, who looks like Felix Hesse, who's bald, European, a maniac. And again, I'm going to see this as a recurring template for the villains that um, the challengers encounter. Olaf Targoryen has used the stolen equipment to breach what's what he calls the dimensional barriers using a molecular ray. And he's unleashed these strange creatures, one that feeds on energy signals and another that eats minerals in rocks. And the team split up into two groups and after a lot of chasing and fighting off the monsters, they meant to, they managed to send them back to their own dimension. Now again, this encountering different types of monsters that they have to beat, again, is um, a pattern that, that appears in these comics, these challenges comics as well. The second adventure in issue one, which is called The Human Pets, is a silly, unremarkable story that takes up ten pages of the issue. A metal sphere lands in a rural area, and when the challengers investigate, they are sucked into the sphere and taken into space where they're kept as pets by a gigantic green alien child. It's a Land of the Giants-style adventure where the team have to deal with the terrors of the alien child's nursery, including a giant alien cat. Eventually, the alien's parents arrive and send the challengers back to Earth. Challenges issue 2, which has a June 1958 cover date, um, which has Kirby doing pencils, Dave Wood as writer, and inks possibly by Marvin Stein. Opens with a 10-page story called The Traitorous Challenger. June Robbins, though her surname's changed to Walker for some reason, sabotages the challenger's attempts to defeat a giant monster in Australia. This is because her computer has calculated that the challengers would die. What's great about this story is the very weird creature which is described as a fusion of the organic and inorganic. It's dinosaur-like, a scaly cube on two legs with a long neck, and its head has a, a telescopic face with glowing red energy. It feeds off heat energy, and the, and the challengers use this to defeat the creature. There's no explanation about the origin of the creature, just an observation by one of the challengers that it may have been caused following atomic testing. The Monster Maker is the second 14-page story in the issue. The team chases a villain named Rock to a Caribbean island where he steals a scientist's experimental thought machine. Rock sets a King Kong-like ape after the challengers. Ace Morgan lets the, the scientist give him thought powers and the two battle. And we get giant hands, dragons, giant vacuum machines, giant hypnotic whirling pinwheels. It's a really wacky Silver Age adventure that, that typifies a lot of um, Kirby's work on, on Challengers. Issue 3 of Challengers, which has an August 1958 cover date, Kirby on art, Dave Wood writing, has two stories. The first is The Secret of the Sorcerer's Mirror. 
And in this, the villainous Hilary Mycroft has stolen a chart and mirror belonging to an ancient sorcerer called Kregon. And her race is on to collect the parts of the secret and then construct whatever it is. And ultimately, we never find out as the challengers manage to sabotage it. Mycroft is a, a little dapper dandy criminal with a monocle. We get giant monsters in the form of a, a titanic sea state snake. Mystical elements, giant hands, a strange gigantic head. And ultimately, Mycroft wants to assemble the parts to create a colossus he'll be able to control. But fortunately, Red manages to remove part of one of the pieces which causes the device to explode. The second story, The Menace of the Invincible Challenger, has Rocky Davis going into space in an experiment where he takes alien fluid which makes him indestructible and gives him superpowers. But unfortunately, memory loss. He comes back to Earth, he's confused, he runs away until he's befriended by a gang of criminals. The ending, which becomes a shootout between the criminals and the police, um, and Rocky regaining his powers, is quite abrupt and spoils what was actually quite an engaging plot. And perhaps if the story had been a whole issue instead of 12 pages, it would have resolved better. Challenges issue 4, which has a November 1958 cover, with Kirby writing and penciling and this time Wally Wood on inks is a stronger whole issue story. Now Kirby's art definitely benefits from Wally Wood's inking which has a tremendous effect on the the visual look of of the issue. Wally Wood emphasises shadows in his his art which gives a stronger sense of space and the physicality of what's in Kirby's panels. It's also panels where machines are inked in a style that suggests Kirby's later um, drawing of machine technology. Everything is a bit more detailed, more elaborate, and the issue is so much better for it. Kirby himself seems to need a whole issue to unpack his story, and there's no sense of anything being rushed narratively. The Wizard of Time has the challengers up against Darius Tycho, a time-travelling criminal. After thefts involving soldiers, the police capture a Roman centurion who leads the challengers to the island of the wizard. And there they meet Tycho, who tells them he experiments with time travel. The challengers begin to aggressively question him, but he escapes in his time travel cube. The challengers find Tycho's notes and a smaller time cube and follow him into different periods in the past. Ace and Rocky have an adventure in ancient Greece involving flying and crashing a plane, while Prof and Red are caught up in ancient Egypt. Together they then visit Nostradamus who had provided Tycho with a a mathematical formula that could be used to travel into the future rather than just the past. The challengers follow Tycho into the year 3000 where they find that he's been collecting things to take back to the 1950s. When they finally meet Tycho he traps them in an anti-gravity ray threatening to leave them stranded. But the authorities arrive, they're very neat-looking policemen in capes, and arrest everyone. And the challengers and Tycho are all tried by an electronic judge. The judge acquits Tycho, saying he cannot be punished for coming from an irrational age. And the challengers are also freed, and everyone's sent back to the 20th century where they take Tycho into custody. Though, for what crimes other than theft, it would be difficult to pin on him. 
The Wizard Island, Wizard Island is blown up by the future people in the final panel just to prevent any more time travellers from the past turning up and disturbing them. Challenges issue 5 with a December 1958 cover date with Kirby on pencils, Wally Wood inks and Dave Wood as writer sees the challengers solving the riddle of the Star Stone. It's a, a full-length B-movie adventure set in India. An archaeologist called Vriedel, again a bald maniac, discovers a legendary Star Stone, a fragment of a meteorite with inscriptions made by an ancient sorcerer and holes for opal, emerald, diamond and pearls. Placing each of the jewels gives into the holes gives Friedel temporary elemental powers, and possessing all four give him permanent superpowers. The challengers chase him all over India, dealing with a jungle fire and stampeding animals. Friedel is a bizarre-looking birdman. Shark attacks, Friedel transforming himself into a fishman. Eventually the challengers chase him all around and finally trick him into losing his powers. So it's, it's actually a really enjoyable story. Challenges issue 6, which has a February 1959 cover date, has Kirby on pencils, Wally Wood on inks, and is scripted by Dave Wood and Ed Herron. Captives of the Space Circus, by Dave Wood, is another silly adventure where the challengers are tricked into answering a fake distress call at sea, and then are teleported into space to become performers in an interplanetary circus. They're forced into fighting Quadro, the four-finned demon of the deep, who they quickly defeat. They then try to sabotage the, the, the train's power tube, which looks very much like a, a mid-20th century vacuum tube, but end up having to perform again, this time with little pink round men and large green bird-like men. After a revolt against the circus ringmaster, the challengers end up on a crystal asteroid where they have enhanced strength and de defeat the aliens that are chasing them. The ending has the challengers taking the ringmaster in for justice. There's a couple of really neat touches about this story. The language disc that translates different alien speech and the crazy space train itself that transports the, the circus across the cosmos. And overall, this story has a very Atlas Comics feel. The second adventure in the issue, The Sorceress of Forbidden Valley, marks the challenger's debut of Ed Heron, the long-time comics writer who'd scripted Green Arrow since the end of the 40s and would go on to write challenges after Kirby left, leaves the title. June Robbins, who's back to her original name, crash lands her plane on, on an uncharted island and discovers an ancient lamp, very much like a, an Aladdin's lamp in a cave. The challengers track her down and discover an unknown civilization. June's been mind-controlled and uses mystical powers on the challengers, at one point turning red and rocky into stone. And it turns out that June is under the control of Charles Agar, a wanted criminal, who's taken over the civilization and uses the fumes from the lamp for mind control. June actually seems to have some incredible powers. It's predicted that she's going to arrive um, and become the sorceress. Although this isn't explored in the story once the fumes wear off and the challengers make their escape. Now, for a reader today, it's an uncomfortable story. The Sorceress of Forbidden Planet exemplifies the way that female characters were being written at the time, at the end of the 50s. Here we have a story where June, the honorary challenger, could have had an amazing adventure on her own, perhaps even 
leading to the, the Henri being dropped from, from her title. But in the very next issue, June insists on joining the men in an adventure and is told in no uncertain terms that she's just an observer and not to get involved in any of the action by the men. Challenges issue 7, which has an April 1959 cover date, has Kirby on pencils, Wally Wood on inks and is scripted by Ed Herrum. It's another double feature. The first story, The Beasts from Planet Nine, has the, the challengers called in to Druid Island where an alien spaceship has crashed and giant creatures have escaped. The monsters are all quite fun. There's a giant pink dinosaur that, that wraps itself up into a ball. There's a fire-breathing bird and a gigantic blue jellyfish. And of course, the challengers manage to capture the creatures to prevent them causing havoc. And at the end of the, the, the story, the owners of the creature, creatures who are, are tall, orange-skinned Plutonians arrive to recover the monsters. The second story, The Isle of No Return, has a thief using a molecular transformer to walk through the walls of a vault and steal jewels. The challengers follow the thief back to his island base where he uses the transformer to shrink them to the size of mice and imprison them in a parrot cage, while the thief, who's called Anton Zammer, and yes, he's another bald maniac, who's stolen the work of, of a revolutionary scientist. He's waiting for a time-locked box to open and reveal an even more amazing technology he can, he can appropriate. Luckily for the challengers, the honorary, honorary challenger, June, even though she's been told not to get involved in any of the male action, she's stowed away on the helicopter and she arrives and frees the men. There's some fun, um, particularly when the challengers hitch a ride on a parrot before being restored to their full size. And, and dealing with Zama. It's probably grudging, but at the end of the story, the challengers do thank June for rescuing them. The final Kirby issue is another double feature. Challengers issue 8, which has a June 1959 cover date, has Kirby on pencils, Wally Wood on inks, and is scripted by Ed Heron and Dave Wood. In the first story, The Man Who Stole the Future, June brings around a friend, Marie, who I think is the only other female in this run, who's luckily inherited an ancient castle in Mordania, as you do. Once again, mysterious boxes have been left in the castle by an ancient alchemist. The challengers open the first box, which turns Ace and Rocky into boys. It's a, a youth serum, a youth solution that does this. At this point, a man called Drabney, yes, once again a bald maniac, appears and opens the second box to reveal a matter-controlling helmet, and he escapes with a third box. And later the challengers find that Drabney has used his powers to be proclaimed the new ruler of Mordania. The third box contains goggles that show the future and enable Drabney to steal future technologies he can use in his bid to take over the world. Ace and Rocky pretend to be June's children and visit the palace of Mordania's museum, where they rescue Prof and Red. There's a battle and the challengers beat Drabney by using the youth solution from the first box to turn him back into a child. Drabney reappears much later in the challengers run as a recurring villain and member of the League of Challenger Haters, but that's a long way after um, Kirby and Wood left the title. There's some really neat touches in this story, um, particularly the bizarre army of star cars that Drabney assembles to lead his war to conquer the world. 
and it, it seems almost like something Kirby would draw as part of his fourth world many years later. And in the last couple of pages of the story, assisted by Wally Wood's inking, you get a brief flash of where Kirby's art would develop, um, particularly in how he, he, he draws technology um, in the 60s. But what's most interesting about this story are the, the touches that seem to reappear in the character of Doctor Doom in the Fantastic Four. The Eastern European feudal setting and a dictator using um, mystical technologies for, to, to acquire um, power. Another recurring villain who also is a member of the League of Challengers haters, the robot Krah, appears in the second story in issue 8, which is called Prisoners of the Robot Planet. The challenges are petitioned by a childlike alien to free his home planet Zuna from giant robots who've been given sentience by a leak of radiation from an exploding human rocket. The radiation um, has in infected the robots and hurts the aliens, but has no effect on human challengers. So the challengers are sent to Zuna in pink space bubbles. When they get there, they manage to control Kra, who's the leader of the robots, and they trick the robots into um, a mass assembly and spray them with an antidote to the radiation, which enables the aliens to then deal with the robots and take back their planet. It all ends happily, and the challengers return home. Issue 8 marks the end of Kirby's run on Challenges of the Unknown and his work for National Comics at the time. Dave Wood also left Challenges to work on titles like World's Finest and a long-running stint on House of Mystery, scripting Dial H for Hero stories. Despite how important Challenges is in the history of what would become Marvel Comics, Kirby's attention while at National wasn't on Challenges though. Rather, he was actively looking to draw a syndicated daily comic. For comics artists and writers, creating a syndicated strip that would run in newspapers across America was hitting the big time. Stan Lee, for example, had hoped his collaboration with Joe Manili, Mrs. Lyons Cubs, would be his ticket out of his job as editor of Atlas. And although Lee would later say otherwise, it was a sudden death of Manili that ended his ambitions and was another blow at the time. On October the 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, into orbit, and the space race began. Harry Emlock, the general editor for a national newspaper syndicate, the George Matthew Adams Service, decided that space adventures would be a perfect subject for a syndicated strip. Emlock contacted Jack Schiff, the managing editor at National, who was the editor of Batman and a range of supernatural comics and talked to him about using one of National's existing features. National's Executive Vice President and General Manager, Jack Leibovitz, was, wasn't interested and told Schiff to create a new feature himself using freelancers. So Schiff put together the writing brothers Dave and Dick Wood with Kirby, who'd already been kicking around an idea for a syndicated strip called Space Busters. And this strip became Sky Masters of the Space Force. Adventures in the style of Alex Raymond and Milton Caniff. For Kirby, this would have been the pinnacle of his career. And the strip launched on September the 8th in over 325 newspapers 
and had a Sunday strip which had a separate storyline which launched in February 1959. The strip itself is quite restrained in terms of plot and art, though Kirby's pencils, inked by Wally Wood, are incredibly impressive. It's very much of its age, mid-50s science fiction anticipating the space race. Sky Masters is a general in Space Force, an American space programme. Most of his adventures involve getting into near-Earth space and tackling saboteurs and criminals who want to exploit rocket technologies. In one of the Sunday stories, Masters even lands on the moon. Sky has a Ben Grimm-like sidekick called Riot and a girlfriend, Holly, who is an early Sue Storm. She even has a younger brother called Danny. There's even a criminal femme fatale called Satin, who has a thing for Masters, who could be straight out of Terry and the Pirates. Kirby nailed the narrative process of the daily strip. The final panel always overlaps with the first of the next days. One adventure swiftly moves into the next. One feature which we see Kirby replicate later in Fantastic Four is the cutaway designs of rockets in the story, in the way that Kirby would show the insides of the Baxter building or show um, the the, the various um, cars and transport that the, the four would use. The best story in terms of art and storyline is the Jumbo Jones Sunday storyline, where a small man, Jumbo, insists on joining the space program at the same point that a villain called Sparrow steals a rocket gyroscope. It's a slightly comic take on espionage, though there's an amazing sequence during a hurricane that's very dramatic. Within three months of the launch of Skymasters, there was trouble. Jack Schiff filed a legal complaint against Kirby demanding 4% of the money Kirby was making from Skymasters as an ongoing payment for securing syndication. Kirby countersued, stating he'd been coerced into signing a contract for Skymasters and that the payment to Schiff was a one-off. There were also other disputes about split of payments between Kirby and the Woods. Kirby wanted 60% because he had to pay an income out of his share. Schiff was offered a settlement by Kirby in the woods, a a $500 one-off payment, but Schiff refused. Schiff then fired Kirby from Challenges of the Unknown, claiming Kirby was using Challenges ideas in Skymaster stories. Schiff also threatened to reduce the work National would offer Kirby unless the artist agreed to his demands for 4%. Supposedly, Kirby's earnings from National dropped from around $900 a month to $100 at this time which Schiff said was because Kirby was seeking less work from the company. On December the 21st, 1958, Justice George N. Fanelli of New York Supreme Court ruled in favour of Schiff. Kirby broke off all work for National, and after a year of Skymasters, also ceased working on the strip, vowing never to do a syndicated comic again. So at the end of 1958, Kirby was looking for work exactly at a point where Stan Lee was looking for a fast, skilled artist to fill the place of the highly talented Joe Manili, who'd been killed in June when he fell off a train. Lee had said that Manili could make anything look exciting and that he could draw faster than Kirby. Kirby himself said that he felt washed up at Atlas, a company that by now paid its freelancers some of the lowest page rates in the industry and had a very poor reputation for looking after its workers. Kirby's arrival appears to have encouraged Goodman to launch Tales to Astonish, Tales of Suspense and Strange Worlds. And I wonder whether or not it was Kirby who actually pitched these books to Goodman. 
Kirby produced over 300 covers for Atlas and early Marvel between 1958 and 1963, which meant that on the comics racks, Atlas and Marvel comics had a distinctive style that stood out significantly from other companies' titles. And it's possible to see this as a factor in building what would become the Marvel Comics universe. Thanks for listening to Unstable Molecules. Unstable Molecules is written, edited and narrated by Gary Hollingsby. That's me. If you like the podcast, please tell others about it. You can follow us on Twitter at MarvelUMPodcast. You can rate and review us in iTunes or subscribe to us in any podcatcher of your choice. And you can check out the supporting material at our website, www.marvelunstablemolecules.com. Next time, we'll see how Atlas Comics, Romance and War titles also fed into the creation of the Marvel Comics universe. <laughs>